why do we exist as a team? Um, what are all our different situations and how can we build empathy for each other? Um, what does, when, when, once we start to move away from the idea that work has to be done between the hours of nine and five, how can we design uh, workplace arrangements that suit individuals in the team? Welcome, everybody, to another uh, Meet the Author with Gary. Gary, what are we doing today? Well, tomorrow we're going to do something just a little bit different. In the past, as you know, we always talk and, uh, to an, about an author of a book. But this time, we're actually bringing in a founder of a developing practice. And maybe it's appropriate because this practice is developing so fast and evolving um, you really can't write a book about it yet. So maybe the book is being kind of written in the past. And maybe that book has been written by who we got on today, and that's Andrew Blaine. So welcome, Andrew, to our show. Hi, Gary. Nice to be here. It's right. and Andrew is um, <laughs> down under, right? So what time is it where you are right now? Yeah, it's 1 a.m. Um, so I did go to sleep and then wake up. I'm not sure that that was the best idea. Um, but hopefully I'll kind of work into this conversation as we, as we get going. Okay. Well, thank you much for joining us. And the, the practice that Andrew and his, um, and his colleagues have created is something called Remote Agile Framework. And as you can see on my background here, they've got a really fascinating uh, logo look at it and I first thought this is the Royal Air Force but I understand it's not. Um, it's remote agile framework and it's a framework for remote and hybrid enterprises. So let's get into it and Andrew can you exactly explain what is remote agile framework or can we use RAF for short? Yeah RAF seems to be the uh, that's kind of what we call it around the team. Um, I think the, the easiest way to describe it is uh, RAF is a way of doing things for enterprises that want to pursue uh, remote or hybrid working as a, a, as a core pillar of how they do things. So we believe it's the world's first fr framework for effective remote and hybrid working. Um, it's focused at an enterprise level. So um, rather than just being a guidebook for teams as to how you might do remote work effectively, we're really looking at an organisational level. So how do you design strategy, take strategy into teams, make sure that everyone's aligned, execute strategy, um, design operating models that are going to be fit for purpose, govern the system, all those sort of things. We're, we're trying to tackle those problems for organisations. And, yeah, we've... Um, We've probably got about 100, 150 organisations globally that are using RAF in some way, shape or form now, um, ranging from smaller digital companies up to like large global healthcare organisations and, and, and finance companies and that kind of thing. Well, you launched RAF about two years ago. So if you think back two years ago, what inspired you back then? Yeah, so I think, Gary, we met through complexity circles uh, through the Kinefin 
framework. Um, I uh, launched a consultancy in about 2009 called Elaborate, and we built what we, th we believe to be the best lean agile consultancy in Australia. Um, we have about 100, 120 people up the Eastern seaboard of, of this country in four different places. Uh, and yeah, coming into 2020, one of the things that I was starting to feel was that maybe we weren't doing enough as a group uh, and, and not doing enough with the customers that we worked with from a sustainability perspective. Um, so yeah, was personally trying to connect sustainability into what I did. Um, and when COVID hit, uh, I've got a bunch of nerds that I work with. Um, so we were all running our own spreadsheets and doing the um, doing numerical models on the virus as it was coming out of Wuhan. I think we had our first strategy meeting around um, around COVID in January or February 2020. And we were like, well, this has potential to be like catastrophic business ruining risk for a consultancy that did a lot of its work on site, particularly one that had exposure to higher education and tourism and travel. I think it was kind of 25 to 30% of our revenue, what we thought was highly exposed to a pandemic. Um, so we need to actually make, uh, we need to do some things strategically uh, to defend against what we thought was going to be a pretty challenging time. Um, and RAF was one of two strategies that we executed. Um, but basically, from, from my perspective, it was kind of like, all right, I know how to make organisations run really effectively. We've been leading remotely for a good 10 years. You can't really lead consultancies, a consultancy in the same room as your team because they're all over the shop. Um, Going back, I think there's, there's a quote from Taleb that says uh, the principal thing that you can learn from a life coach is how to be a life, life coach. And a lot of the time with, uh, with consultancies, maybe the principal thing that you can learn from a consultancy is how to be a consultancy. But it is a, a truth that consultancies really do know how to run remote teams because we have to do it. So we're like, all right, well, we've been working, making organizations more effective using agility um, for, from the, there's a lot of complexity stuff woven into the way that Elaborate does things. Plus we uh, also understand remote. There's nothing out there to solve this problem for organizations. So we can probably jump on this and, and, and do something meaningful. And if we can keep people out of the office post the pandemic, then, We've got carbon miles that we're banking. We're taking cars off the road. We're um, starting to have some of the uh, really positive benefits that we want to have from a sustainability perspective as well. Yeah, well, I think the environmental benefits are, are quite there. Um, I think some of the things that we talked about is that whole reduction on, the, on transportation uh, and reducing urban sprawl. Mm. And just think about the office waste that goes on now maybe some of that gets to be eliminated. I'm really interested in some of the social sort of benefits you saw. Can you share a couple of those with us? Yeah. Um, look, we had some, uh, we probably had some hypotheses going in on this stuff. So there's a lot of research around the sustainability aspects of remote working. And it's not, it's not as clear cut 
as maybe it might be made out sometimes. So there is an energy density aspect to office buildings. And when you've got people all working together, you've got one set of heating and one set of cooling, which is somewhat more efficient than, or considerably more efficient than heating space for the same people in their homes. Um, we, we hypothesize from a social perspective that if people weren't commuting, then they'd be closer to their families and they'd be closer to their kids and their local communities. Um, I think we were a little bit surprised just how much of an impact that made um, as, as the pandemic sort of played out. So one of my colleagues, Dave McKenzie, for instance, um, he got to see his, uh, his kids' first steps uh, last year. And, and he said to us, I just wouldn't have seen, I wouldn't have seen uh, my child take those steps if I had been in the office because I would have been um, on site somewhere. So I, I live regionally, not like really out rural, but um, I'm sort of 60, 70 kilometres out from Melbourne city. The amount of parents that I've seen uh, spending time with the kids, walking dogs, I think dogs were the true winners of the, of the pandemic. They got uh, more walks than, uh, than, than they'd been used to. Um, but just you, you saw a whole lot of people who otherwise might have been doing other things, um, sitting on trains, suddenly having time to spend with the people that they're nearest and dearest to. And I think that's very, very interesting. And maybe in time, it, it, like that's the sort of thing that you won't see the benefits of for a generation, but I think they're really, really interesting benefits um, that we might get from that. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to share along that line, the um, fact that I'm a, uh, basically run a consulting practice of one out of my home office. So I understand what remote is. And the last couple of years, staying home, I found out that I probably made more connections than it was if I was going face to face because I don't have to run around. I can do that uh, quite virtually. And of course, we're all really good Zoom experts now and other, other tools. Just, just asking for others out there, Tom, um, what's, what's been your experience uh, with remote work? Can you share some of your thoughts? Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think one of the things that's interesting is the degree to which, as you say, there's more networking going on outside the immediate physical office. I guess the downside of that is that I think people have become much more selective. You know, when I was in the office, you have to talk to the people who are in the office. Um, or when you go to site and have a site meeting, you talk to the people that are relevant to that. And that's one of the benefits of consultancy. When you're on site doing a bit of consultancy work, you're physically in that team. So although there's been more networking, it's been quite selective and that leads to people being a little bit cliquey. <laughs> you tend to get communities of like-minded practices. I, I think to turn it around the other way, and um, <laughs> um, Gary and Tamara are probably a bit used to this with me, that I sort of look for the counter of pit side you know the other side of the card and i think what's interesting about what you've been talking about and you know only briefly but thinking about it is um for me a lot of the lessons of hybrid working and remote working are common to day-to-day -day business for me you know i'm 
my trade is managing major hazards on complex plants. And everyone tends to focus on the physical presence. So if you're managing traditional occupational frontline safety, slips, trips and falls, I suppose, is a, um, and the actual face-to-face -face culture about are you prepared to challenge people? Well, that is very much there in the moment, the face-to-face -face team of the team on operations. Whereas some of the bigger, more complicated challenges are how you get, how do you get the technical support from specialists who might be on the other side of the world, who might be on a different shift to you, or learning from a sister plant that's on a different continent, um, and really quite complicated issues. And I think those those are effective teams, and some companies do it very well, are quite common to some of the learning that we've all had to, to start refining. I mean, I think I agree with what you're saying about, you know, there's been a big improvement of life for a lot of people who have got a particular type of work, but um, there's others who found it very, very uncomfortable. So I think there's really important learning in terms of better hybrid working better networking, recognizing some of the principles of agile. And it's interesting, my, my daughter's in the sort of programming world and really doing agile for real. And I think a lot of those lessons could be better applied to non-software development. You know, we're missing a trick. Um, and, and I guess one of the only things that worries me a little bit about the consultancy analogy, because I guess I've been on the receiving end of a lot of, uh, I was going to say high value, but maybe some people would argue expensive consultancy and previous employers is you sort of learn the trick to deal with consultants which is the same trick as actually benefiting from them and one of the things that strikes me about consultants is you're looking for a, a sort of one week to three months impact in reality often you want you know the organization to feel energized when you leave because that's what gets your invoice paid and a bit more work whereas in reality as, as you say nurturing a vine is you do some little pruning and then you don't see whether you've got it right for another year or five. <laughs> and, and building culture, I mean, Tamar has referred to it. I personally have someone who thinks that you can't manage culture, you can manage behaviors, and then you let the culture develop. And I sort of <laughs> say that to provoke. But, and I think Gary's phrase about gardener or mechanic is a really powerful analogy. And I just wonder whether what we learn for consultancy is different from building a, a hybrid team of sort of specialist people who know a lot about little narrow silos it's, it's there's a lot of learning but different challenges so i think it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about but it's not just managing short-term projects it's managing complexity long term that we can learn a lot so yeah i think it's it's valuable learning in different dimensions really it's interesting because I've actually been a, uh, a remote worker pre-COVID for many years. And um, I started in grocery store. So of course, everything was person to person way back in, you know, 2004, whatever it was, um, 2005. Um, but then when I went to, to Intellex, a technical company, that's where the hybrid working started where we had some people that worked from seattle into the toronto office etc and what we found there very interestingly is it goes back with um, intentional inclusion right that you have to work just like any relationship at building rapport and thinking about including people and when people neglected that piece 
that's when the silos became. That's when, you know, people in the office would have meetings and the remote people were feeling left out, right? So I think it's also, um, and it's interesting now because I'm at Safepedia, where again, in the beginning, some people were in the office and some of us were remote and that same type of culture developed, not intentionally, it's just that because the people in the office were all there together, it was so simple to get to have those um, talks around the water, water cooler, right? And the people who were remote weren't there, of course. But now that we're all remote, we're actually coming back saying, okay, so now how do we intentionally make sure that we're including everybody in the conversations, right? So now we've even um, booked in those kind of like water um, cooler talks so that it's not always just business. It's also learning about one another. And it's, it's just to to push us forward even a little bit more and challenge is like, I remember um, back in two, the early 2000s, my friend Gigi, who is an IT tech guru, um, she was working for a, a company and she was often satellite, right? Satelliting in and she would be remote working people from all over the world. It was just phenomenal at that time because I had never seen somebody doing a job like that, how the IT department could bring people from all over the world into a room and have discussions. Now we're doing it over Zoom, right? It's like, oh, well, that's old hat. But back then it wasn't. And the fact is that they did this purposely with the IT to do brainstorming, right? And, and I think that we need, mainstream needs to kind of, um, get into the boat that there's tools that we can be using, right? Like if I'm doing health and safety here in North America, and I could be talking to somebody who's doing health and safety over in France, and we can be having these discussions, right? And then we can even be bringing um, health and safety committees together and talking. I think we haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of people want to throw it out because it's easier to control people face to face than it is to control adults in a Zoom room. And people have this idea that we have a parent child relationship in the workplace. And our generation is starting to say, mm, no, we don't think so. So I'm going to throw that in there just because I want to spice it up. What are people's I thoughts? Yeah, I, I've got a question for, for Andrew, really, and it You're, you're, you're to, on fire tomorrow. Oh. You're on fire. <laughs> yeah. I just want to give you the thumbs up. But go ahead, Tom. Sorry, I just yeah. have to. Tomorrow's discussion reminds me of some work. I mean, it's it's a long time ago now, sort of from early days of internal email and company blogs and a group that were interested in complexity. And I think they did actually even call it complexity at the time looked and you could do mapping about who was talking to who on blogs and email. And there were, most people remained in their cluster, whether it was, you know, electrical engineers, safety departments, and safety departments talked to each other across all the sites, you know, every safety manager on every safety site, on every site and shell talked. Every, you had these communities and then you got the people who were jumping between clusters that were, if you like, networkers. They were the natural inter-cluster networkers. And they were, they were potentially very valuable. And when you talk to each of the groups that they were between, they weren't like, who's that bloody irritant? They were like, they're really useful. 
because they're building the bridges. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting from remote working is how you retain and build the sort of serendipity of that's vital to complexity that you don't end up just dropping down into the niches because as Tamara says it's really exciting and you know this is a good example of this where you get like-minded people talking to each other but how do you make sure that you drag people in and get the link to other yeah. groups I think it's also you yeah. need to have leadership um nurturing and promoting that because i've been in a situation where i've seen one person doing that and leadership liked them so it was okay for that person to do that and then somebody else started doing exactly the same thing right but then they started monitoring that person they didn't really like <laughs> saying oh well you know you're not really paying attention to your work you're all over the place talking and it's like hold on a second what's the difference between person A who's doing it and person B who's doing it, right? So there's that at play too about making your employees feel valued for doing that networking. Well, the yeah, focus so part, oh, well, I just wanted to make sure that we're cognizant of the time. The focus of our Meet the Author show, of course, is on safety. So I think we need to get on for that and maybe we can come back and cover off these other interesting points. Andrew, one of the RAF enterprise principles you have is remote but responsible. So can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, look, um, it probably comes back to those early design principles. So we wanted to unlock the sustainability benefits of remote working. We wanted to unlock the social benefits of, un, uh, of remote working. And we wanted to unlock some of the, um, the corporate benefits, I suppose, of remote working. But as you have all said in the last few minutes, there's a whole bunch of challenges that you have to solve as well. And one of the, one of the design principles we came up with was remote responsible. Um, and that to us means that when you're thinking about how to design uh, the way that you're going to do things as a remote first or a remote friendly enterprise, you've got to think about, you, you can't just basically say our, our team is in their own homes now, they're in their own home offices and therefore we're completely abrogating our responsibility for their energy use, for their safety, for their um for, for their worst workplace safety, for things like bullying and harassment, for, for um, psychological safety, for risk. We actually have to start thinking about the perimeter of risk for the organisation and maybe stretch that out a bit so that we're starting to incorporate workplaces that are beyond our control. So that was really what we were thinking. Um, so things like uh, some of the particular challenges that, we had in mind when we were designing the framework. Um, we've just spoken about the decay of um, informal networks in organisations. So how do you make sure that you're deliberately stimulating those informal networks and making sure that you're creating opportunities for people to connect, whilst also remembering that social networks are opt-in. They're not, like you can't put someone into a friendship or into a social group. They've got to choose to move in those circles. So how do we kind of start the conversation around what people's hobbies are and that kind of thing so that they can take those conversations where they want to do, take them. Um, we had a particular concern around um, domestic violence uh, 
because um, a lot of the sets that we saw certainly very early in the pandemic were that people who were victims of domestic violence were suddenly more at risk than they had been in the past. So work for some people is an ex escape from the home situation. Uh, and when someone's working remotely, the abuser has more control than they do in a, in a normal sense. So that was something we're very conscious of. We were worried about loneliness. We were worried about the fact that for some people, a work community is their social connection um, and they don't have a lot of that stuff outside of work. So how do we make sure that we're looking after those people? And the other thing was just um, what we ended up calling situational empathy, which was how do you, um, like you, you've got people who have vastly different situations at home. So you've got people who are home at, are at home alone. You've got people that are at home with young kids. You've got people who are at home with people that need special care. Um, you've got different gender roles in the house. You've got different cultural roles in the house. And all of that stuff needs to start to become uh, something that we need to design around when we're thinking about working agreements for teams. So we're really about how can we sensitively surface some of the safety and equity issues in a way that ex somewhat expands the perimeter of responsibility for the organisation without overstepping the boundary and starting to be have leaders getting really involved in people's personal lives, which like it, it's it's kind of an interesting balance that we had to straddle. Any comments, Rosa? Any thoughts on that at all? Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just listening because I'm, I, I've been a little bit out of touch out of the LinkedIn discussions because I'm finalizing my new book. Uh, and it really focuses on how the COVID experience has brought to surface a lot of issues that have always been there having yeah. to do with uh, gender and uh, equity issues, discrimination, not to mention the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I actually, one, uh, I'm just resonating with everything that you that you're saying, Andrew, in terms of different issues that are going on at home. Um, and uh, so I'm taking notes as you're talking because I had a little section there on the hybrid world for my book, and so you're helping to round that out. So I'll give you credit, no worries. My whole book is nothing but giving credit to people because uh, the COVID. Uh, thanks to like Gary's and Tamara's work um, brought us together so many different minds together it's like my book is almost a reflection of all of the uh, collaboration that happened during the last two years um, but on to back onto the hybrid one of the things yeah. uh, Andrew that I that I noticed when I was doing some uh, assessments on site uh, was that the, the essential workers felt that the people working from home were privileged uh, and got special perks. Like, for instance, you, especially now with gas prices, if you don't have to drive into work, you're saving a ton of money. Uh, and uh, But the, the, the biggest complaint was family time. You know, they get to be home with their families. They, um, you know, and, and we... Uh, we're not being compensated 
for that. So I felt like the hybrid um, movement had a potential to add another we they to the situation because of course the people who are coming into work and risking getting COVID and all the extra pressures of going in are not really cognizant of what's going on in the home, right? I'm sure they're not sitting there thinking about all the things you were just talking about. Oh my God, you know, they have their hands full. And so I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on that. Um, and it is related to safety. It's all related to safety because anytime you create a, a we, they situation or you create more mental stress, that's completely related to safety and health. But I do want to hop back to what Andrew was also saying, though, about the the harassment and workplace um, violence issues that does happen over remote. Um, because it is, I think that's something that has also not been thought about. And I, and, and I think that goes back to intentional, intentionally thinking things through about what is actually needed in order to create a healthy work environment. It doesn't matter if it's, it's um, in the workspace physically or remote. In both places, I think that uh, leadership has now come to a mature, a more of a maturity thinking that they have, they do have a key pl place to play in creating more uh, safe environments for our mental health. Yeah, 100%. Um, so one, we, we've got sort of 30 to 35 patterns that we use. One of the ones that we, uh, probably the thing that we do most for organizations is support them with relaunching teams with uh, remote or hybrid at heart. Um, and part of that is a team alliance. So through, through the team alliance, we're really starting to think about things like, why do we exist as a team? Um, what are all our different situations and how can we build empathy for each other? Um, what does, when, when, once we start to move away from the idea that work has to be done between the hours of nine and five, how can we design uh, workplace arrangements that suit individuals in the team? Um, and probably most importantly, how are we going to behave as a team? Um, and that's, that's really critical. So it, it's kind of shifting the conversation away from leaders being responsible for team behaviours to the team being responsible for both defining and also enforcing the behaviours that they, they expect of each other as a group. Um, so building that alliance, uh, um, which, which we do kind of as a part of a two-hour exercise with teams, is, is really about, all right, well, let's create the conditions for that stuff to both be surfaced and also to be continuously improved and monitored by the group of people who are trying to work together over time. Um, that's a really good observation, though. So with going back to what Rosa was just talking about, that hybrid piece, right? And that the, the individuals in the workplace are feeling that those working at home are privileged. What intentional, what, what intentional actions could be done then to kind of bond those two different worlds? Yeah, sure. So that's something that's fairly close to my heart. My, uh, my wife is a... Uh, uh, is an essential worker, which she rubbed in my face, being 
I, I'm a non-essential worker during the pandemic. So she made sure she, she, that I knew about that. But yeah, she had to go into town. Um, she was in an enforcement role. Um, and that's been very challenging for her, seeing a lot of her colleagues being able to embrace a new way of doing things and seeing me being able to embrace more time with the kids while she still needs to do the, the commute and, and all that sort of thing. For, for mine, uh, hybrid presents a greater design challenge than all remote or partially remote. Uh, sorry, all, all remote or all in the office. Hybrid is where you really need to be intentional about things. And some of the work we do with organisations is trying to work out, all right, if, if I'm going to get people to come back into the office one or two days a week because I, I can see the value in it, how do I make sure they're not coming back into an office and sitting on Zoom calls with a whole bunch of people who are in the same room on other Zoom calls? So how do we be intentional about making sure that the time that we do spend together is time spent on the most valuable stuff? We see three activities as being particularly uh like powerful in person. So one of those is thinking about complex problems. So where you've got, uh, when, when you've got complex challenges that you can't necessarily solve without sort of probing the system and thinking about them to use the, uh, Gary's, Gary's a Kinefin guy, so to use the Kinefin analogy, um, how, how do we start to think about some of the more complex challenges that we're doing together? Um, there are, there's huge value in collaboratively planning together. So getting people together to think about where there's dependencies and where there's uh, cross-team challenges. Uh, how can we bring people together to think about how we're going to tackle those problems? Um, and also kind of when we need to seek expertise that's outside of the domain of the team, uh, working out ways that we can do things like joint application design or, um, or or run things where we're borrowing expertise from elsewhere and, and and spending time together. So yeah, I think if you if you start if if hybrid is the way that you want to work, then you need to start prioritizing the stuff that is most beneficial in the backlog, in the work backlog for your team to do together and then kind of build the rest of your work week around that time. So that becomes the, the, the constraint. How can we make sure that when we are together, we're working on the stuff that we get most value from together? Well, that makes sense, but do you have any thoughts on the perceived inequity of the situation since you're so you're personally involved. So I'm curious if you and your wife have had any discussions of that. Uh, would it be would it make her feel better if she was getting uh, essential worker pay or <laughs> you know added to her pay? Uh, because I, I don't think that money is always the issue. I, I wonder if you guys have talked about that at all. Yeah, look, remuneration is an interesting one. So I think um, my experience with leading people over a couple of decades is that REM is secondary to issues like 
purpose, connection, um, and uh, freedom and, and autonomy and other aspects. But what I have found is that every different person that you lead will have a different set of drivers um, and, and will, will, will attach different importance to certain things. So you'll lead some people who are really fired up about what title they have and how they're remunerated and are they fairly remunerated compared to other people in the team. You'll have other people in the team who are really fired up about making sure that they've got a community of people that they're connected to, that they feel like they're working together. You'll have other people who are really driven by curiosity. So am I working on new stuff? Am I learning things? Or do I get an opportunity to master the skills that I have? I think that the challenge as a leader is to work with your people and really understand those motivations and then make sure that you're designing the workplace to suit those people. From, from my wife's perspective, she enjoys being out of the home and, and she's a park ranger. So for her, the benefits of being in nature, that that to her is the the real um, that's that's her that's her thing. That's her reason raison d'etre for being at work. Um, that's not something that would work for me. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of a. It, the, I think the the correct answer is really to understand the motivations of the individuals and then design around those motivations. Um, a really good example we've I've got a. I work with a company that decided to go fully remote first and, and lock in. They're a, they're a, um, they're an apparel an apparel scale up, and they launched one of their teams. They went through a launch exercise, and one of the people in the meeting said, "Hey, look, um, I actually really miss being around my teammates. Um, I actually miss the energy that we get when we're together. It makes it." hard for me to get excited about things and on the basis of that they agreed well okay the rest of us kind of don't need that but because you're a member of our team and that's something that you need we're going to try and make sure that we get together at least once or twice a week and we give you that energy that you need I think as soon as you kind of move away from the idea that you need to control things from the top and dictate how things are going to work towards the idea that teams are a fractal unit in the organisation that have individual needs and uh, the role of leaders is actually to surface those needs and help people to build things that are contextually sensitive and, and suit the people that are involved. As soon as you kind of move away from the, the puppeteer model and more to kind of the, the gardener model to go back to what we were talking about right at the start of this conversation, that's when you get really great uh, workplaces that suit everyone. Well, we've talked a lot about remote. I think I'd like to spend some time on your second word, uh, which is agile. So can you, can you quickly tell us what agile means? You know, I, I'd, I'd suggest a 30 second elevator speech, but in today's remote context is probably not appropriate. So can you tell us what agile is? <laughs> Yeah, sure. I think the word agile has it's taken on a bunch of different meanings. Um, origins of agile 
were we used to do software development like it was a uh, big batch sausage factory kind of thing where you, you you start at the start and you say all right we've got to make this massive change to the systems in the organization what exactly we're we trying to achieve what does that uh, what does that mean from a user's perspective what would we have to design in, in order to solve the user's needs then we'd go off and, and build the software uh, and then we bring that in for quality assurance and go through deployment processes. And by the time you kind of went through all the steps in that process, you were usually 18 months down the track from when you wanted to do things to when you were delivering something into production. And as we all know, 18 months is a long time in business. Uh, there's, uh, what, what have we had in the last 18 months? We've had... Um, a couple of waves of pandemic. We've had a Ukraine war. We've had supply chain mess everywhere. Um, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that can change in 18 months, which fundamentally changes what you need to do and, and what your users are going to need. So Agile was about really thinking about how can we take those longer um, detailed processes and move to a more adaptive way of doing things where we're working in short cycles, we're very close to our, the customers of what we're trying to do, and we're releasing things that are high quality on a regular basis. Um, and obviously then agility concepts have moved out of software and, and most organizations have some, some sense of what business agility means. And to me, that's you look at the value streams in, in your organization and where it is contextually appropriate, you look at how you can take a process that might be 12 to 18 months from idea to value, and you look at how you can make that a shorter cycle process where value emerges um, over time. Yeah. Now, this is, oh, I was just yeah, gonna tap in yeah. here, Andrew, because it's very interesting because Scott and Jamie actually are also from software. And so we use Agile in Safepedia. And so very, which I love, I love it because you come up with an idea and then you can springboard into figuring out how to quickly do that idea and then quickly go back and assess it and see where you need to pivot or do you need to drop it and do something else. And so um, working in that environment compared to another to the other environment where people would we'd make these long plans and and think we had the conclusion and everybody driving towards that and then you get frustrated along the way when things aren't working but other people have to go to the plan and keep going right and with agile it was like it's okay you know we're in um discovery mode is a big thing that's talked about on our team we're in discovery mode everybody remember we you know if it doesn't work we'll pivot um and it's enjoyable yeah. <clears throat> right <clears throat> well well timothy clark recently wrote a harvard business review article and he titled that agile doesn't work without psychological safety we need to look at that one rosa for your book <laughs> anybody's any thoughts on that from anybody my yeah. book's never going to be done is my thought <laughs> <laughs> i i would agree with that though because you you have to be able to feel comfortable to speak up and be your authentic self 
mm-hmm. and yeah. say, hey, this is what I'm seeing here. Is anybody else seeing it? So I I could I could see where there's a line between that. Yeah, I think the, the thing that strikes me about a lot of this kind of as an ideal, and, and that's both whether you're remote working or agile, is it creates a huge burden on leadership capability. You know, if you're managing a, a physical team, you've got a nice big office or a desk or the parking space, you kind of can create authority and you can see and sense what's going on. There's all sorts of physical things which, you know, society's learned to give leaders authority. And, and I think working remotely, and I'm quite sympathetic to the leaders in our organization is they've really had a tough time and they're failing really badly at leadership. And you've almost seen the term disappear. People have stopped talking about the leadership. They start talking about senior managers, which for me is a very bad <laughs> indicator. But I, the, the thing that strikes me is maybe an analogy here about how difficult it is to learn to lead or run an agile team. It's just, and it comes back to your example, Andrew, of um, the Ukraine, where there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, were the Russians kind of running it in a very traditional command and control way, and the Ukrainians, after their real big failure in 2014, learnt what, I mean, the military don't use the term, but it is agile. And then when you look at the detail, and for various reasons, I sort of know some of the people who were doing it, a lot of the training that the West was giving to them was not about how to use the latest widgets. It was about how to have a modern battlefield agile system where you really delegate delegate right down and the leadership have got to stop and back right off and i I don't think that's a very good analogy but in terms of psychological safety that rosa was talking about it it sort of highlights the issue and it has taken generations for western military to learn to move from first world war to kind of modern techniques and actually to be fair they still get beaten by you know what we would call terrorists but in some situations, those kind of organizations, and we'd, we'd call it agile when they're, when they're our friends in Ukraine. We don't view it like that when it's ISIS in Syria. But I, I just think it's a, a way of thinking about how challenging it is to lead these agile organizations in difficult environments. Because as you say, business changes incredibly rapidly. And it is, so I just think it's worth thinking about how challenging it is for leadership, especially if you're used to one model sometimes you need to start again and it's back to your point if you've got the wrong vine maybe you need to start again with a different different plant I think, the view of leader, I think the view of leadership is also changing though you know like that view that it's the person in the prestigious office with the parking spot and all that that's kind of going out of the window in a leader you know in is coming into the individual who can help us go and achieve a vision and a purpose right right? yeah and it's very dynamic it gets moved around as the task evolves yeah it is changing a lot yeah i find leadership such a fascinating topic and i could probably talk about it for hours um it's it's interesting that like we we spend a lot of time in agile circles talking about uh mission type orders or mission command and the, the origins of that in warfare and how that is a more appropriate leadership analogy in the context of software development. So we have knowledge workers, they are well remunerated, they're skilled people. How do we create the environment where those people are going to succeed? But also interestingly, 
Um, and uh, Dave Snowden talks about this. There's parts of your business where you need to lead very differently. So it's all well and good to lead knowledge worker teams in a certain way where you've got parts of your business that have less skilled workers um, that you're bringing together with a, a lower ramp up time and maybe the, the workforce isn't as permanent. Mm -hmm. There's a way, there are ways that you need to lead those parts of your business um, where you've got things that potentially could go wrong. You need to do things like drilling people really effectively. So what's the role of the fire warden or what's the, role of the person uh, who is managing outages and prepare the organisation for the, the possibility that things are going to eventuate. But once those things do eventuate, you actually have to go very authoritarian in your leadership style in order to be effective. So at that point in time, it's a pattern rather than an anti-pattern to basically say, do this, do that, because you don't have time for things to play out. So yeah, I think I think you're right. Leaders uh, leaders have it really tough. And often we look at leadership from the context that we spend the most time in and we can see errors in the way that leaders are acting. But you do need to recognise that leaders have to kind of jump into different contexts and lead differently all the time. And it's, it's a very challenging role. Yeah, I'd like I think to was, add a, what is that? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Rosa. Go ahead. I was just going to say that that really resonates with what I've been looking at during COVID. I saw very interesting um, McKinsey. <laughs> they, they have a lot of money, so they do a lot of research, but they had a, a graph that showed uh, who had suffered uh, the most mental stress during um, 2021. And I was surprised to see that women senior leaders, I mean, they were way above everybody else. Uh, and then next were male senior leaders. And then everyone else was as expected where women of color, you know, are higher than men and people. Because I think it, that part has to do with the amount of control you feel you have over your life. But the women, um, the senior women leaders, I had this insight that they, uh, they take on a lot of the uh, feminine responsibilities of providing support for people, listening and caring. Uh, and then, then I was reading this feminist uh, black woman's uh, article and she said uh, that motherhood is the only uh, position of power for, for women of color. And I thought, or for women, really, it's, it's the ultimate position of power is motherhood. And that really blew my mind because I thought, of course, they would have to be the ones reaching out and caring. And uh, I, just, I just feel that so much in my heart. Um, and I do think that uh, we have to start uh, looking at what we expect from our leaders in a different way because they're they're suffering from acute burnout too but they don't get uh, much sympathy or, or time yeah yeah there's a yeah, there's this phrase about punching punching up that people use actually you know there's an awful lot of punching up goes on in society at the moment and i think it's very it's very easy to do and actually in the safety community we do a lot of punching up it's very easy to criticize up 
and it's criticism rather than constructive um, insights often. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. So we, I, I spent the last 10 to 15 years trying to help organisations adopt Agile. Agile is anti-management. It's, it's an egalitarian way of doing things and you're often rubbing up against authoritarian leadership in organisations. So I'm, I'm trying to bring this egalitarian work practice in, but the leaders uh, in the organisation just can't lead in the way that's going to make that effective. The last two years, one of our primary focuses has been how do you actually make remote work sustainable for leaders? And I think, uh, Rosie, you pointed out women leaders having the biggest challenge. We're actually starting to see a lot of women leaders opt out of full-time work now um, and start to explore whether the workplace is the right space for them. We've got a few challenges that have to be raised and navigated. One of those is that Zoom fatigue is real and it's felt by women more than it is by men. Um, so the, the research is pretty clear on that. If you've got, like, we, we basically say a rough heuristic in organisations is if your teams are spending an hour a day in VC, then your leaders are probably spending four hours a day in, in VC, depending on the structure. Um, spending that much time of your workday sitting on calls like this, uh, trying to be engaged, trying to remain enthusiastic and and, and give that perception that you're leading effectively, that's exhausting. Um, and when you've got other stuff going on in your life, if you've got kids in the house and your cultural role is to look after those kids, um, in most cultures, you are expected to be the primary caregiver. You're putting a massive burden on those people to be uh, always on, um, which is not fair. So, yeah, look, a lot of what we do is about trying to rethink the nature of work. So move away from the idea that all work has to be done synchronously. We all have to be doing it together. Let's try and think about how we slice the work up for asynchronous delivery so that we can work separately on it. And then when you're starting to think about the events that you have in the calendar, how do we make sure that those events are designed around digital constraints rather than just copying what we did that emerged around the physical constraints of the office and replaying it on something like this. Because once you start to rethink the constraints um, that, that you've designed things to, you can start to say, well, maybe I don't need to have a playback session where we all look at what's been done. Maybe I can record a bunch of videos and people can look at the ones that they want to look at. Uh, and then we can have a Q and A session about those videos rather than everyone having to sit through the conversation. Maybe we don't just sit in a round table and go through point by point on agenda, on agenda. Maybe we can create a space where people can interact on a digital whiteboard. Mm. Um, there's a whole lot of ways that you can do things that kind of, that, that shift the focus away from, the conversation, which is often one way, and 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 make them make things more interactive and, and less synchronous. Is that in your book, Andrew? Yeah, so it's not a book; it's a framework for effective remote working. Um, so you can check it out at www.remoteaf.co. Oh, that, that's really helpful. Very helpful. 
It's an emerging thing, Rosa. So probably a book is even too early for this particular topic. Uh, but I've even learned talking to um, Andrew and his, <clears throat> one of his cohorts, um, Tony, about there are alternatives to Zoom. Um, one of them I'm playing well with now is called Butter. And Butter is just totally amazing what you can do with it. So I signed up for it. I'm just kind of kicking the tires on it, realizing that there are just better ways of doing things and going asynchronous, as you say, using Miro or Mural doing your piece of work at um, 2 a.m. in the morning as it's coming up for you, Andrew, or 8 a.m. for me. And it's all there and everybody can see it. So you don't have to be all together in one room together. So different ways of, of, of working together. I think that's maybe, really- <clears throat> that's Maybe we should butter? try it, Gary. <laughs> can you put the link in the chat? Yeah. Box? It's, yep. uh, yeah. it's very simple. Yeah. Just, it's just butter.us. Just like zoom.us, just go to butter.us okay. and you can open so up a fun. free account and just like play around with it. So like, oh my God, now I know what to do with my spare time. <laughs> oh, I was wondering what to do with my spare time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so timely. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we've hit the kind of top of the hour. And yeah. as you know, the, the usual format is Asking the author, or in this case, the founder, um, Andrew, what would be your three takeaways that you would like to leave us? Yeah, look, um, I think the first one for the safety community is to just, as, as I said earlier in the conversation, think about the perimeter of responsibility for the organisation and think about how you can sensitively expand that safety perimeter so that include, it includes the home office without invading people's privacy. So how can you kind of just expand that perimeter in a way that is um, sensitive to the, the privacy of the individuals? That might mean that you start to take responsibility for uh, making sure that you've got ergonomic workplace setups maybe you start to shift some of your facilities budget to providing uh, equipment for people to set up their home office um, maybe and, and one of the things i'd really love to start seeing is that organizations start to take responsibility for the environmental footprint of their workforce beyond just the spaces that they manage so maybe you need to audit uh, which members of your team are using what sort of energy and start thinking about how over time we might be able to support people with a shift to, for instance, solar and battery or, or something like that. So it's not, yeah, just just think about the, the perimeter of, of, of safety and responsibility for the organisation and think about how you can carefully expand that. I think the second one is, uh, and I think, Tom, you raised this, uh, second takeaway is that if there are three types of networks in organizations, loosely you've got the, the formal hierarchy, which is the kind of the, the structure of the organization. So the CEO, the direct reports of the CEO and the, and the hierarchy underneath that, that is one network in an organization. You've got the process network in an organization, which is how do I navigate that hierarchy? So what are the value streams 
through the organization and what are the steps between the different divisions that I need to go through to get stuff done. The third is the informal hierarchy in the organization. And that is something that emerges through uh, social connections between people. If you're not really focused on deliberately stimulating the informal networks in your organization, you will have a robust organization that can do the things that it needs to do to be successful, but you will lose resilience. You won't be able to adapt to changing circumstances because you don't have the informal network in the organization to ebb and flow and move and change when things are necessary. And you won't be aware of, you, you, you'll lose a critical sense of network for risk. Um, so you'd be very deliberate about the informal networks in your organization and make sure that you're actively working to, to make those work. Um, the final point I think is also be very kind to your leaders. Um, so as Rosa pointed out, uh, I think most people who are not in leadership roles will adapt to remote or hybrid working pretty quickly if, if, it, if it's possible for them and they'll enjoy it uh, in the most cases and it will be quite beneficial to them. Leaders have it tough. So really think about how to design your operating model to take the burden off leaders. Otherwise, you're going to be in a situation where exhausted leaders who are overburdened are going to start dragging people back into the office to fix their own challenges. Um, so I think they're, they're the three that I'd probably take away. Well, thanks. Thanks for that, Andrew. And I, again, I appreciate everybody being on the call. And I'm going to turn it over to you tomorrow. As a great discussion. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Without the audience, we wouldn't be having a show. So thank you. Okay. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yep. Thanks, Andrew. Take care.